0: is the chief learning officer and managing partner at and I know I'm going to trip over this Dr. Lillian Aje Ore I hope I did that right consulting I hear claps where she helps businesses to understand market trends and as I like to say make sense of all of these marketing analytics data data that we have to we have to plow through she focuses on e-commerce digital marketing and growth strategy She recently completed her Doctorate of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, and we'll talk later about the topic of her dissertation, which is near and dear to my heart. And and yes, there's more. She is also the founder of a nonprofit, Global Connections for Women, which is reaching over 3.5 million worldwide, promoting gender diversity and women and youth empowerment, and it just received, yet again this is not the first time, the Best of Manhattan Award for Best Charity in 2021. Dr. Ore is also one of my esteemed NYU colleagues. I'm going to call you Lillian from now on. So welcome to the podcast, Lillian.
1: Hi, hi. Oh my God, this is such an honor. I've been like a distant fan of your podcast. And here I am getting my fix of Joanna. (laughs) One of the (laughs) favorite, if not the favorite faculty at NYU S P S.
0: Everyone loves oh, your gosh. class. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I didn't pay her to say that, whoever's listening out there. Um, I don't pay anyone to be on this podcast, actually. Not at all. Okay. It's always fascinating to me, though, Lillian, that when I start my research for these interviews, what I find out about people that I thought I knew and how much I didn't know about them, in your case, um, what you're doing with the nonprofit, but we'll save that for a little bit later on in the podcast. I always like to start with where are you from?
1: I am from the world, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm originally from Nigeria, where I was born, raised. Um, I came here um, in my teens, so I did my high school here and then all my education. My mom decided to immigrate us tonight from Nigeria to the US um, for several reasons, um, some some of which I wouldn't get into in this podcast, but. Um, the most important one is to just to give their, her children a better life and access to opportunity.
0: And you, and you have been taking advantage of those opportunities, no doubt. Thank
1: you, Mama. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you do, because you do do a lot, as most yeah. of us do these days, right? We don't, most of us are not wearing just one hat.
1: Yeah. I think I, the way that I describe myself is I'm a chief learning officer, a data scientist, a mom a wife. And I'm also an educator. I love, love teaching. And I love working with students to help create opportunities for them, teach them how to build their own career, give them the tools and the equipment that they need to to be successful in their roles in whatever role that they decide, whether it's in corporate or even a startup of their own, or even a charity of their own, just giving them access. I think it's really important to knowledge coaching and mentorship
0: beyond just teaching. And one of the things I, uh, that I know you focus on in your, certainly in your consulting has been the analytics of all of this crazy marketing thing that we, that we immerse ourselves in every day. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to get too much into it on this podcast because I really want to focus on the dissertation, but I do want to th- know what your thoughts are from the data geek perspective of Google's elimination of third-party tracking cookies and, how yeah. do you think that's going to affect our lives?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I've i developed a confidence for Google. Um, so when Google decides that they're going to eliminate certain things, it's really for our own advantage. Um, I remember doing a presentation for a delegate from China, um, and it was based around you know, the things that go on in advertising that no one really want to talk about, which is the fact that we will have a report that says a million people looked at an ad, but it's really 10 percent of that number. So there's a lot of like disingenuous activity. There's a lot of bots online. There's just so many things that are not being policed is one way to say it. So I think, you know, deleting access to third party is a good idea, to be honest, because that way we get to a more real numbers and actual real people. And then we also instill trust back in people because I think we've lost that for a long time.
0: You think? I think so. No, I'm right there with you. I'm teasing. (laughs) I'm teasing. I totally totally think that we're all very, very distrustful of all of this stuff. So, um, because I know when I talk about this with my students, and they get nervous about, oh, my gosh, this is really going to affect our, de- affect our data accumulation. Um, I try and look at it from the positive side, too. For A, we've marketed before with less data, and that doesn't mean that we're not going to have it. But I like, your, I like your phrasing of the data will be the, – the results will be more real. Yeah, I mean,
1: the, if you think about data, the way the data is collected – of the data that we collect is uncurated. So you just have this unstructured data coming in. And the reason why it's always so unstructured is because we have so many different voices in the data that we're trying to capture. And so now companies have to spend a ton more to clean the data and get it more structured. Whereas now with those third parties being kind of restricted from our data, we might actually start seeing what the real numbers are. And there wouldn't be as much anomalies in our data when we do the analysis. So I think what we need to be grateful for is the fact that the way the technology has evolved over time has really refined our data and it refined our insights. And so I always see it as a challenge to marketer for us to get smarter with how we, we run our numbers, we talk to customers and see how we can power through this adjustment period,
0: right? Oh, I love that. I love that. And what about Apple's new restrictions on apps with this? What are they calling these things? The IDFAs. We have to learn all this new tech terminology identifies for advertisers. This idea that when we download an app now, we're going to have the option to opt in or opt out of any tracking cookies.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll have to look at this one from, from a mother perspective, right? I'm an advertiser. I'm responsible for putting those ads out. But I'm also a mom and sometimes, I mean, I've sat with my son and I've seen on his app the different types of ad that shows up. And I'm just like, it's, it's not that it's inappropriate. It's just not the right audience for that, for that ad. So now it's like when the is with my baby, I'm like, hey, can you make sure that when he's on the computer? So I think it's more peace of mind and control. It's, I'm okay with consumers having more rights, more control over what comes through their devices. And as a parent now, I think it's important that we have some control because we want to give our children, right, and give our customers an opportunity to control how they consume us. I feel like advertisers don't necessarily have to be afraid that restrictions will keep us away from our customer. I think it's another way to reinvent how we get to our customer. And we have other mediums, other ways to effectively communicate and promote our business to customer But we just have to respect um, some restrictions that exist and and understand why they exist. And also put yourself in the consumer's shoes and not just wear your marketer's hat 24 hours of the day. Understand that consumers are people and therefore their needs require them some protection.
0: I love that. I love the perspective from not just from a marketer, but from the through the perspective of being a mom, which I wasn't really thinking of it like that, and and um, I think maybe more people should be talking about it from that vantage point. Okay, so we have so much to talk about today that we could be on this podcast for hours. I know, so we try and keep it a little bit less than that. And you and I do like to talks, which may always makes it more challenging. But I you know. recently received your doctorate, which I am just beyond impressed with. Um, it's a lot of time and money invested. What, what made you want to do that? I, know. I mean, you're a busy lady. You're a busy lady. <laughs> you got a lot
1: going on. Such a great question.
0: You know, I want
1: to, I want to answer it from a very honest place. And Joanna, you're going to be very surprised when you hear the story, because I don't think I've ever admitted it out loud to the world. So I was pregnant with my child. Um, I worked for a company, which I would name. And um, it was towards the end of my pregnancy. I think like you actually came to my class like in earlier months of my
0: pregnancy. Johannes. Yes, I do remember the first. <laughs> yes, I think the first the first time I met you, I do believe that you had you had a little baby bump going on. I now.
1: did, I did, and so I was head of analytics, head of analytics for this company, and I don't know. I think they were a little bit fearful about what would happen to me when I become a mom and whether or not I can still manage. You know this Fortune one hundred company as a new mom. And unbeknownst to me, the day that I had my baby, Joanna, I got a call from this company and they said that they were going to lay me off. And I remember telling my boss that, do you know, I literally just, I, I picked this phone up because it's you, but I just had my child three hours ago. And he's like, And like, obviously he had a profanity war because he didn't, he wasn't quite sure what the timing was, but he was like, I knew I wanted to get it in before she had this baby. And then of course she had the baby before I told her that. And I remember, you know, my husband coming into the room and she was, and he was like, Lillian, I know how much you love to teach. And maybe this is the right opportunity. This is the right time. This is the right break in time for you to pursue that desire. And I, to, in my mind, I was like, well, I'm already teaching. <laughs> 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 and then like, so I started, so I, I went to this, I went to, you know, to see, you know, one of my mentors on campus and I told him about this and I don't want to put him on the spot. So I wouldn't mention his name. And he told me that, would I consider getting an advanced degree in education. And I said, absolutely. I've always known that I would get an advanced degree but I wasn't quite sure what topic and where, what am I going to do? Like, I just didn't know what particular direction I was going to go. But I was, I'm always been an advocate of knowledge. I love to learn. And my son actually has the same virus, I guess. He loves to learn as well. I think it's and a good
0: virus. That's a good virus. <laughs> that, that's when we want to be more contagious and not less.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I decided to apply to the CLO program at Penn, which is the chief learning officer And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And so I became a mom and I think I waited a little, little bit. You know, my son was about nine months and then I started the program. And it's one of the best decisions that I've ever made in my life. And I'm very grateful to the organization for laying me off because they gave me that time, that moment in time to reinvent myself. And so, having had the degree and the experience, I've gone to do so much more with my nonprofit, and I've created another business for myself as a consultant, developing training program, entrepreneurship program for other organizations, including UBS investment bank. So it's been a nice ride.
0: (laughs) Yes, I love, and and, you know, you hear this so often. That these stories of when something not great seems to happen in your life, and and the way people like yourself can turn that around, and you know, literally, in life hands you lemons, make lemonade out of it, which is really kind of exactly exactly what you did. Yeah. So, um, how did you choose the topic for your dissertation?
1: And tell yeah. us what the topic is. Yes. So my topic, in the nutshell, it's about adjunct faculty pedagogy, like how do you develop an agile faculty? And it's whether someone is new as a teacher on campus or someone has been in teaching for a long time, we're all looking for that continuing education, ways to perfect our skills in the classroom, ways to be effective at communicating with our students, and then ways to be effective with getting our students to learn and understand, be able to transfer that information onto a different. Setting, whether it's academic work or professional work. Um, I did it for a number of reasons. I remember when I first started um, teaching, right? I think for what we do as adjuncts, you know, we're gig workers, we have our professional acumen that we bring in because we've had task knowledge, we've had all these industry experiences, but we all struggle. I don't know what your first time was like. It was an adjustment for me to to go from, you know, leading a presentation to now teaching a course, teaching students what I know. And yes, the school provides certain resources. I wanted to investigate how other adjunct faculties like myself, you know, navigated that path. Um, and so my, my dissertation, I looked at different hybrid of teachers. So I had people who had been teaching for up to three years, and I've had people who had been teaching for up to ten years, and I wanted to know what they did, whether it's through the school resources or even independently. How did they facilitate developing their skills as an educator? And do the you, insights are yes, incredible.
0: Me. Yeah, no, I want to talk about that. But um, I'm just as a, as you're talking, I'm thinking. I know probably a lot of our listeners understand what it means to be an adjunct faculty, but I don't think everybody does. So, do you want to? Explain. Yeah, you and I are both adjunct faculty at NYU, but uh, so we know we know what that means. But I don't know if everyone does. Yeah. So adjunct
1: faculty are part time teachers is how you have to look at it. Um, So a lot of university and based on what I've seen, um, especially in the U.S. market and and we're seeing this trend consistent across the globe when it comes to education, whether it's structured learning or unstructured learning we've seen that 70% of the population of the teachers on each campuses and universities in the world, right? um, Specifically in the U.S. market, um, there's more part-time teachers um, that they are full-time tenured teachers or educators or professors, right? Um, And the reason why the trends exist is because we want our students to get practical knowledge. So we want them to combine theory with experiential. And we know that experiential learning or experiential education is more effective at getting students to recall that information that they've gathered in the classroom. And so that was the reason why I I wanted to talk a little bit about this trend that I've seen and and talk about how we can support adjunct faculty in their delivering the courses so that we can develop them over time. And then we have effective response since this is the trend for most university it's important for higher education to understand the value that's there and then to get feedback because there wasn't a lot of um, research out there available around adjunct faculty, what their pains were, you know, what, what they needed and how they were getting the information that they needed on the support that they needed in order to be effective in the
0: classroom. I love it, I love it. Um, I'm trying to keep my mouth closed a little bit about why I think that the higher education likes to use adjuncts, but we'll get to that in, in a minute. I'm sure that will come up. Um, and I do think practical, the practical knowledge and, and, people who have actually had real world experience is so critical in, in higher education right now. Absolutely. But I read through, as so I would say, I scanned your, your dissertation because um, it was very impressive and very long. Um, and there's a lot in there, how they're viewed, what they think, how they're perceived by students. What surprised you the most about your findings? Yeah.
1: yeah. I think it's such a great question. And it's like, you know, now my mind is like getting flawed with all the different insights that I gather I think the most thing that was that really, there were two things that really stood out to me was how much, how well involved educators were at coaching and serving as guidance to students, maybe for my population. Cause I, I mean, I did have a random sample with specific requirement, but I was very much, I was surprised by that,
0: you know, um, how much time status. adjuncts actually do help to mentor the yeah, students that they have. They, mm-hmm.
1: they really do. And like, you know, at the end of the day, I think the biggest result was that the teachers, the educators, adjunct or otherwise, are invested in that student's development beyond the classroom. And maybe a postdoc could be something like to do an analysis between what's, what's the difference between adjunct, And I know that there's some study out there the difference between adjuncts approach and a tenure faculty approach. I know from some of the literature that I cited in my, in my paper, that they found that adjunct professors are more empathetic than tenured faculty, right? Um, the reason why there is is so many, so many reasons why that's the case. Um, some people think that because the, um, the, the tenures have more protection from the school, you can get fired that clause. Um, but I don't think it's always true. It's not. It's not always going to be the case. But one thing I know is consistent in what I read in terms of my research and what I've seen is that adjunct faculties serve their students beyond just educators. They're their coaches. They're their mentors, and they do are. They're very much invested in the future outcome of that student.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's because um, I mean, Liz? There's no secret that you know, and this is one of the reasons that I happen to think that higher education is increasingly using more adjunct faculty is that it's cheaper. It it, it comes down to it becomes much more cost effective. And especially if you're in these large urban areas, there's a lot of talent and there are people who want to give back. You know, I I always say I, I don't teach because it's making me Huge gobs of money. I I teach because I genuinely love to teach. So, Mm -hmm. do you think that's part of why you have that that mindset? Is I'm here because I really want to be here, not because this is the only way I can pay my rent, so to speak. And I want to really help do something. I want to. I'm at a point where I want to wherever you are, and that doesn't. There's no age factor in there. I want to give back and and use my real world experience and. And, and, and share this and, and help to mold the future, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. I think that, you know, in a way, we're kind of vicariously by- living through our students to say, if I had to relive my career experience, these are the things that I would want to learn now so that I don't make those mistakes on the job. Right. And I, I say that to my students all the time when I teach them data analytics. I was like, back in my days, I just, these are the mistakes that I made, and my students are probably working against that. Like, they're like, oh, I had to I need to make less mistakes than my professor did when she was on the job, right? Um, so yeah, I think we we do it. What I found is that a lot of the professors or adjunct professors, right, do it because they're really passionate about giving back, um, and they're very protective of that student to make sure that when that particular student goes out into the world, um, they represent not only them. So the student is an extension of that adjunct faculty. I always tell my students that, you know, one of these days I wanna go into a work, to a workplace and have someone say, somebody that I just hired, so brilliant, and they were like, they were trained by, you know, Dr. Lina and Jaiore, And I would be like, <laughs> like wow, wow that's, that's me. That's my, you know, my, it's my student. And that's, those are the kind of things that brings us joy. I mean, a lot of my students follow me on LinkedIn and I see their career changes. Like when LinkedIn announces, like someone is taking on a new role, it just brings you so much joy. It's hard to even quantify. I tell my, you know, I tell my, um, my family that my students are my kids. Like <laughs> I'm not their biological parents. But I feel very much connected to them. The other thing that I found that was very surprising to me, this is the big shocker, is that there are some, I guess I'm trying to figure out a very delicate way to say this is that. This is, this, is, just, this
0: is, these are opinions, you know, shaken, not stirred, so you can, you don't have to be delicate. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. This is the right place to talk about this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think that when it comes to, feeling special, recognized, right? A lot of the people that I spoke to did not feel like they were as valued, which is to know that all of this is all the incredible input that they've done, this is all the things that they've done, and they just weren't given enough recognition or acknowledgement. I had one um one adjunct tell me, and a couple of them sent me the same thing, but this one really stood out in my mind. She was like, you know, I got I got perfect evaluation and I've been teaching for the last six years. And she was like, it would have been nice to get a department letter saying, Congratulations, you know, thank you so much for being outstanding in the classroom. Um, And then someone also said that, you know, even if it's just figuring out a way to ask me what type of professional development do I need? Right, like, because they're like, I'm still a career woman. Yes, I teach, but I still want the school, the learning institution, to ask me for more of a customized experience. So these are little things that we could do. I mean, you, I guess institutions could do to really make their adjunct faculty um, and this part really feel more be- like they belong in that organization. And then there was another another school. I'm not going to name any schools, of course. Um, but this one really surprised me, and a couple of them said this because I interviewed a couple of um, people from this particular school that they are not even allowed in the faculty meeting because they're adjuncts.
0: Oh, I and read that my, one. I was real. That one really kind of blew me away. I know. I that that one I that, I that, one, I did, that one popped right up off the page as I was scanning through your hundred-page dissertati- dissertation. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's not even allowed. That's kind of amazing, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that is kind of amazing. One of the things that personally, again, because I'm an adjunct, so I have a personal vested interest in this conversation in that respect, is um, that I don't think that the universities as a whole, and I teach at more than one university, realize that, especially at a point when higher education is coming under such fire that the the adjuncts who are making a difference and are, and are really the students are coming back and saying wow I, you know you made a difference in my life we are the best we are the best marketing materials that they have you know we are what makes the difference between taking an uh you know and some online class at some you know whatever, Coursera or something like that, that you're not getting that kind of a connection. You don't feel that you're an individual person. You're, you might be learning a lot, but that's not to say that you're getting what, in my opinion, higher education brings to the table.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I try to do in my dissertation, and this is how I am um, with how I approach problems. I always provide recommendation. So my dissertation is also something. I think that I, the way that I crafted the dissertation is to also create a way to inform higher education about how do we do this well? How do we set this right? How do we acknowledge professors who are doing well? And then, you know, if you think about it, when it comes to evaluation, right, if a professor, and these were some other conversations I had, someone said, oh, you know, I was laid off at this institution because, I didn't have the right um, evaluation. And he was like, I struggled in the beginning because, you know, I, yes, I was like this SVP of my job and I was doing very well, but I didn't quite understand how to get my stuff together in class to be effective at teaching. Right. And of course he had to go in and solicit ways to improve himself. And there were some resources available in the school that he had to kind of tap into as well. But I thought it was interesting that he lost his position because he didn't do so well in the classroom. Um, and obviously, I think since I'm sure there are programs now at certain institutions that like puts them on rebound or something like that, they, they get through an evaluation process and then they get them into a track that really helped them improve their skills in the classroom. But I just thought that these are things that we should definitely create a way to help teachers who are vulnerable to poor evaluation score so that they can get better since their desire is there. Their desire is to teach students what they know, but we just need to equip them. It's like our students, you know, when they come to get their master's degree, we give them a chance to learn and then we test them, right? We go through an evaluation with them. We should do the same thing. If that first test (laughs) was what our student used to, to determine their success for the entire semester, that would hurt them. You know what I mean? Because they need that opportunity to improve. So I think, in his case, and a couple, I think there were two other people who had the same reflection in my dissertation. I felt like, you know, yes, they should give them a chance to recuperate, um, a place where they can kind of improve their skills. Like, listen, you got poor evaluation in these areas. Let's design a way for you to get better. And then give you an opportunity to retest. And if they do fail and then whatever that policy is for the school, then they'll deal with it afterwards.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer that just, you could, just because you have expertise in an area uh, does not mean that you can teach, teach that. Um, I've always approached teaching the way I did selling. I mean, I do have my undergraduate and my graduate degree in, in, in education, even though I didn't go that route for very long in the beginning, but, um, that you still approaching it from that, that, that presentation standpoint, and even how, how do I present this information? So again, not everyone can do that either. Very smart people right. can't deliver an effective presentation in a business setting. So there is a difference in, in that, that I don't think is always addressed. So I can yeah. see where that that can come to play. You get hired because you know, you're smart, and you know what you're doing. But that doesn't mean, you're going and then, to. And, and and increasingly, I'm curious what you think about this, too, is that um, if this came up at all, is that I think for the most part in higher education, we're getting in, in the United States, it is not just U.S. citizens. We're getting a lot of international influx. So you're teaching to students who are coming from different cultures. And that's a different kind of empathy in my yeah. little humble opinion over here.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to add that, like, you know, there are some things that did come clear. Because I asked when they, you know when I said well were you how often were you able to participate in the professional development programs and workshops that your school provides and they were honest they were like well I'll be honest I've never been to any of those and it's because of timing right when the timing it when it's I think now in COVID people are probably have more access because they don't have to leave their jobs to do it and they were like well the time that these sessions are offered I'm at work or I'm doing a presentation and I'm not available. And it's not available in the evenings because in the evenings is when I have my courses. So there's a conflict there as well. So there's also time that's a factor which can be easily cor- uh, corrected, right? So we just have to figure out the best approach to do that. Um, but I, I felt like the post, and I remember at the end like the last participant that I interview, you know, she looked at me and she said, He's like, Lillian, I hope something good comes out of this. (laughs) Talk about pressure. Like, I'm like, I'm really trying to finish my degree. Um, But it really did kind of make me think about what I could do to support adjunct faculty, right? And to share their voices, their story, their messaging beyond just my dissertation. So I'm I'm working on a book um, and uh, with someone who is powerful uh, you're going to love her, uh, Joanna, if you ever met her. Um, but I think that one of the things that we're trying to focus on, we're going to use a lot of my research on it. And, we'll go, and and part of the title of the book is going gonna, gonna to focus on humanizing higher education, specifically because we have the presence of gig workers on our campuses. And so I'm excited to see what that book turns out to be. Um, But it's gonna have a lot lot of great great lessons for higher ed and they could actually curve this. So we're gonna look at it from a policy standpoint. We're gonna look at it from a DEI standpoint as well. And then even belonging, what does belonging mean for adjunct faculty? What does belonging mean for students as well? Because I think, you know, listening and hearing that some adjuncts were not allowed to participate in faculty meetings, that was very scary. And this is a very prominent university, prestigious university, actually. Yeah.
0: So um I wanna just switch for a little bit here because I otherwise again, I know us will be on for two hours and, and um we do try and keep this to podcast minimums here. I do want to talk a little bit about the nonprofit that you created. Can you tell us about this?
1: Yes. So GC Which I'm very impressed
0: with, by the way. Very impressed.
1: Thank you. Global Connections for Women. I'll tell you, the, the long and short story is that you know I did international relations as an undergrad and I worked at the UN right after college. And I remember being there and saying to myself that I definitely need to learn how businesses work as well because I wanted to start my own NGO. And I knew that the skills that I had was great, but I needed to learn the business. So I, I remember leaving the UN here in New York, um, the headquarter, And um, pursuing this desire, and I said to myself that if I were to go on this path, I have to do it for something that I'm interested in, which is women empowerment and obviously creating more means for gender equality. Um, And now almost eight years, (laughs) uh, we've been at it and I've done so many great things with it. I've had many great supporters, partners, brands, individuals like you and I who've come and helped me. It's my way of giving back. And I think you talked about that. I give back through what I do in the classroom and I give back through what I do with GC4W. And I also give women an opportunity to give back through my platform as well. And, you know, to my surprise, you know, the organization kind of took on his own, I guess, it took on his own life in a way that, you know, extended our reach to 3.5 million people worldwide. And, I try to keep it as relatable as possible and and try to put myself as like, the needs of women evolve over time. And so we have to be willing to evolve with that. So right now our focus is on female entrepreneurship and even helping people identify their path. Um, And so I'm excited to see how that turns out for this year and beyond.
0: I, I think it's fantastic. Um, I love the fact yeah. that everything you do has purpose behind it. Um, I think that's we talk about that on the marketing side too, right? Profit yeah. with purpose and profit don't have to be mutually exclusive. Absolutely. They, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. So I'm in awe of all that you do. Uh, you run a business you teach, you've got your doctorate, you've got the nonprofit, eh, and you're a mom. How how did you manage all that in the pandemic? I mean, we're still in the pandemic. I, I shouldn't even say that we're out of it because we're not really out of it yet. I don't want to get ahead of myself.
1: Yeah. I mean, the truth of it is I have a great partner. My husband is fantastic. He's my, my ultimate best coach. Um, I think, you know, I remember I did a story or an interview for Forbes and I intentionally talked about partnership um, and relationship in that article. And I remember saying to myself that it's important for women to choose the right partner. Um, My husband, you know, when he met me before I became his missus, right, um, he knew that I was a woman that liked to live a purposeful life. And you, I mean, you expressed it well, Joanna, because you do the same thing too. So we can relate on that front as well. Um, And I think the, the most important element that keeps me grounded is the fact that I have a very supportive husband. The other thing that I think it's important that we almost do is I'm also a great project manager and time manager.
0: Right. Because Cause life's a project. Life is a project.
1: To, <laughs> life is <laughs> a project. And you have to know how to prioritize. And I think you also have to have the right people. Um, I feel like the people who support me, shout out to all of you guys, with GC4W are passionate about my organization just as I am. And so I have a husband, so like my own front is balanced because I have the support of my husband. And then my, my career is balanced too because I have supporters of my team, right? And my board. And then, obviously, in the classroom, I also have the support of my students who, you know, I remember when I was still in the program, they were like, go, professor. And I've even inspired a lot of some of them, too, to become, you know, doctors themselves in their own stride. And so I'm I'm just very blessed that I am surrounded by people who really do believe in me, right? My mom planted the right seed. She's the reason why I'm who I am today. So I'm always going to give her a special shout out. Um, but I think that you have to be willing to make some sacrifices, too. I'll be honest about that, um, because everyone thinks that it's just going to be easy. Now, you have to make sacrifices and you have to understand why you're making those sacrifices. Um, and you have to be OK with making those sacrifices as well and not feel that guilt um, and make time for the people that you
0: love as well, because they're going to need that. <laughs> I love that. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. So we're, st- we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but I'm going to start something new with you that I have not done yet. So this is um, an experiment and I want to end with one of these little lightning rounds of questions. Are you game to be my experimental? <laughs> okay. So, okay. Quick, quick, uh, quick little, uh, I forget how many questions I have here. I should have counted them up first. Favorite social network. Instagram. Something people would never guess about you. I love Rosé. Me too. Me too. Um, Last series that you binged. Ooh, The Flash. (laughs) The Flash? The Flash. It's on Netflix. It's a superhero movie. Okay. Most used app on your phone? The Instagram. (laughs) Food you cannot live without. Oh, cheese, salad. I'm a little healthy. That's good. Um, Um, And and chocolate. chocolate. And chocolate. Me too. I can't live without chocolate. What you miss most about pre COVID life?
1: Oh, being able to travel. I I traveled
0: a lot. I was always invited to speak here and there. Yeah. And lastly, what motivates you to get up in the morning? My family. Yeah. Easy, huh? Oh, that was yeah. pretty easy. Was oh, good. Fun. Okay. You did great on that. That was my experiment. So, Lillian, can you tell people where they can reach you? Um your your dissertation is public, I believe. So, I if I, I can put that link in the show notes as well, those who are really interested in getting into all the nitty-gritty of what you discovered. But where else can they find you?
1: Yeah. So, I can be found on com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, Lillian ajayu Ore. And I'm sure you'll find the description on her lovely website. Um, and if you want to find me on social media, um, definitely look me up, Lillian Ajayi Ore, as well. I'm pretty easy to find. And then if you want to follow what we're doing with GC4W, go to gc4women.org.
0: And I look forward to meeting all of you. And I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us. And hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note, info at com. And until next time, remember, whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there.